Alright, so back again, this time to talk about Kelly Oliver's Witnessing, colon, Beyond Recognition. Now, before hopping into it, a few things to say. You can find this on Podbean or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Instagram, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or if you can, or and, if you can contribute via Patreon or PayPal or any way that you can, that'd be great. If you can't do it monetarily, just by subscribing, liking, sharing, any of that helps a lot. Uh, Now, I will say I'd like to thank some of the people that have been very helpful. Nicholas, Matt, Sebastian, John, Boz, James, and Ashley, who have all been really instrumental in helping me keep this going, at least at the the consistency I have been doing it. Uh, Now, without further ado, let's hop right into this here. So, Kelly Oliver's Witnessing Beyond Recognition. So this book, like so many, starts with an introduction titled Beyond Recognition. So here she begins by presenting the work of Dory Lobb, who is a, a kind of a psychoanalytic historian, who at one point in his career was tasked with, uh, I guess, working on the video archive for Holocaust testimonies at Yale. So he was among other historians looking at various testimonies about people who suffered through the Holocaust. And in this process, he recounts time when a woman who testified about uh, an explosion that had occurred at a Nazi prison camp at, at Auschwitz specifically uh, because of a Jewish revolt, because of uh, Jewish people fighting back, she described how one of, on one of the buildings, four chimneys exploded. Now, historically, that was incorrect. She was wrong. Factually, only one chimney exploded. Now, for this little group of people, of which Dory Lobb was one of the um, participants or one of the people compiling this this footage. Among those people, the historians believed that then this woman's testimony was invalid, that it should be discounted because it was factually incorrect. Her, her eyewitness testimony was wrong, and therefore it should be discounted. Now, this didn't sit right for Dory Lobb and other psychoanalysts who were participating in this, because for them, what they saw in this woman was a recognition of something else going on. That is, because this woman didn't give what might be, you know, a factually uh, consistent or factually faithful testimony does not mean that it was not demonstrating something else. And for Dory Lobb, the exaggerated uh, testimony, that is the testimony that described four chimneys exploding instead of one, demonstrates for Lobb a a survival strategy on the part of the Jewish people that saw any opportunity they could to bring themselves out of what historically might be one of the worst situations ever. And this was done for the psychoanalyst through this act of um, kind of exaggerating the facts because there was some empowerment associated with that because suddenly the Jewish people weren't as um, susceptible to the whims of the Nazi prison guards. They demonstrated some power, some capacity to challenge authority. So for the psychoanalyst then, empirical facts, you know, the things that actually happened are not quite as interesting, that is, again, this is just for the psychoanalyst, not quite as interesting as what goes unseen. You know, the kind of psychological impulses behind this woman's desire to, uh, you know, share this testimony, even though it was incorrect, or to share this kind of testimony. And this is for Kelly Oliver, 
the author here. Uh, this is an example of that which goes beyond recognition. That goes that which goes beyond simply the material. You know, simply things that we see out in the world that we engage with that you know we can all be said to uh, agree upon. It's about looking at what happens underneath the skin, especially considering it in a psychoanalytic way, you know, what goes on in the psyche, what motivates people to think about these things in certain ways. Now, this presents a tension among historians who are so, um, are so uh, used to looking at the world through a certain lens, that is through a very, you know, empirical one here. That, that Oliver is describing, they're so used to that that Kelly Oliver asks, is it really possible for the, psych, uh, for the psychoanalyst, for the historian to see something new? If they are always going to be looking at it through the same lens, how is that lens, I guess, infecting the way that they see the world? And that forecloses a certain possibility for Oliver. And this is a possi you know, possibility that is afforded by in this case, the psychoanalysts who look beyond simply what we see, beyond recognition, you know, into the very processes of um, recognizing oneself. At least this is what the historian tries to maintain on the surface, where Kelly Oliver recognizes that that's actually quite impossible for the there to be a kind of pure echo chamber or feedback loop between the uh, historian and the world that they are observing. That is because the only way that people, at least for Oliver, develop the capacity to see is by having seen things that they don't understand. So there is embedded within any kind of gaze, within any process of seeing, um, the capacity to recognize the unknown. And that's something that Oliver contends the historian is trying to suppress, right? Because everything comes down to historical facts. And if we can unearth these fact, facts, we can have a better kind of um, sketch of what history, how history moved, let alone, you know, all the people that engaged in it, all of the kind of subtle motivations that don't lend themselves to a kind of easy identification. What happens to all of that? And that is where the psychoanalyst steps in as just one example to look at the underwriting things that we don't see just with our eyes. So what are some of the possible consequences of this? Well, if the historian looks at the world through their own lens, then anything that doesn't abide by that lens, that anything that doesn't comply to that gaze, the case of the Jewish woman at the beginning here, for example, how her testimony was going to be completely thrown out because it was factually incorrect, anything that doesn't abide by that gaze or fit it is then treated with a certain degree of hostility and antagonism. Now that those are the stakes for Oliver. She recognizes that this desire to maintain a kind of status quo kind of births an othering that necessarily leads to hostility. And this kind of move might be said to portend that is come before or or it might have might follow this. Uh, it might be said to portend or come before the formation of a subject object split where those historians view themselves as subjects that have, you know, this kind of uh, critical engagement with the world, whereas the things they are seeing are just reduced to objects, you know, things for their gaze, you know, reducing history to things that can be seen and therefore can be understood. Whereas the psychoanalyst is someone that actually, you know, demonstrates some degree of humility 
and the psychoanalyst, if they're doing their job properly, lets the other, that is, lets the analyst and the person being analyzed, uh, speak for themselves so that they develop their own sense of autonomy. They are not being told, you know, what is truth and what, what, what is not. So that's the difference here between the historian and the psycho, psychoanalyst in viewing this uh, Jewish woman give this testimony because the historian says it's not true, therefore she's uh, irrelevant, we shouldn't include it. The psychoanalyst, so why am I saying it like that? The psychoanalyst, on the other hand, recognizes that there is a lot there that can be kind of unpacked. Now here she kind of sets the tone for what this book is going to do. And what it's going to do is to try to think about subjectivity, not in terms of a subject-object split. That is, she doesn't want to say that subjectivity only emerges when someone or something is placed in contact with something that they necessarily must view as different from them. So some of the thinkers that she takes aim at here uh, that she kind of mentions right at the beginning are Judith Butler, Charles Taylor, Axel Honneth, and then throughout the book, she takes aim at uh, Merleau-Ponty to some extent, uh, Lacan, uh, among a few others. And she believes that many of these approaches, what she puts under the category of critical theory, which is a little bit of a misnomer, but I won't get into that. Um, or well, I will. You know, critical theory is is really restricted to, in some sense, the Frankfurt School. Like, they are who is doing critical theory. Judith Butler isn't really a critical theorist. She's a post-structuralist feminist. But anyways, that's beside the point. Um, so she, Kelly Oliver believes that these thinkers, in their effort to kind of um, deconstruct the Enlightenment subject, that is the subject that is, you know, they are the center of the universe, they, you know, are comprised of all possibility. You know, these thinkers come along and say, no, no, no. Your subjectivity is predicated on the very, in many ways, very colonial acts of othering others so that you can then claim yourself to be a subject. So while Kelly Oliver recognizes that this is, these have been noble efforts on the part of these theorists, she says that they inadvertently reinscribe a kind of oppressive dynamic because they say that subjectivity is only, it only comes out of a relationship to an other, rather than it being, you know, a thing that you're just kind of born with. So what Kelly Oliver wants to try to do then is to find a way to bridge subjects and others, you know, to move beyond that language, to move beyond recognition, where it's a matter of, of finding my identity in the other by recognizing the other and the other recognizing me. Instead, it is about witnessing. That is, it is about seeing and through that recognizing not an otherness, but recognizing another subject. So we are subjects among other subjects, not subjects among objects. Now she contends that these theorists have their roots in Hegel's thought. Now without going into that too much, and we'll go, it'll come up throughout the course of this book here, Hegel, much of Hegel's work suggests that recognition, that is the ability to recognize myself as an individual, is predicated on me um, recognizing others as not being me. And that is, as others of being their own kind of being. So she takes aim at that because that implies that right off the bat, 
what we are doing is looking at difference rather than looking at similarity, which isn't an ontological condition. That is, it isn't something that we just do naturally. It's something that we do within a certain framework. It's something that only emerges, you know, and you can insert um, any explanation here. It could be colonialism. It could be uh, industrialization. It could be, you know, sexism. Anything that kind of moves us apart encourages us to think about difference as being the primary marker of recognition, whereas she wants to, it to be instead what what is similar between us. So subjectivity is something that uh, Kelly Oliver then applauds. She wants subjectivity to be extended to people. And what happens in the moment of recognition or in that encounter is that one side is stripped of their subjectivity and they are rendered objects. So in a dynamic, like let's say a colonial dynamic, where colonizing people goes to another nation, what wouldn't have been a nation at that point, but you know that's how they thought about the world. Um, they objectify those people and strip them of their autonomy and subjectivity, which is obviously wrong. Now to remedy that, she positions witnessing over recognition. Because for her, recognition is the act of locating my my own identity through the eyes of another. So in order to be recognized on the part of the colonized means that you are only seeking recognition on the part or by the part of the uh, colonizer. Whereas witnessing for her is a way by which subjects in there looking upon not only the world, but looking upon themselves. That is like the Jewish woman at the beginning who through the psychoanalytic um, lens can be said to be looking in upon herself or experiencing the world through her experiences is then given a kind of autonomy, given a kind of subjectivity that has been stripped, taken taken from her or taken in the case of the colonized, taken from the colonized. Now witnessing is not only a way to kind of reinscribe a lost subjectivity. It lies at the very, um, it is the condition for the possibility of any subjectivity even before any oppression has occurred. And that is because witnessing is both, as I said, a witnessing of the outside, but a witness, witnessing of oneself as well, what she calls the inner self. So rather than subjectivity emerging through a kind of antagonism, as we might see in like Hegel or these other theorists that I've already kind of briefly introduced, she says that subjectivity comes about when you have a healthy engagement with yourself and with the world. Now, another kind of supplement that she adds to this, uh, she takes from Freud, hence the psychoanalytic commitment here. Freud's notion of working through, where working through is whatever we might find threatening in relation to otherness and difference. So what we might at first glance recognize as a kind of antagonistic pole, that is a kind of a uh, you know, possible other to us that we perceive as being hostile is, is, is a kind of, is a thought that we must suppress and we must challenge by working through it and asking, why is it that I view this other, you know, and this can be an other that is marked by race or gender or class. And it might not even be marked uh, by any of these things, but it could just be the condition of seeing something other than yourself. Why is it that we immediately assume that this other is an other that is not, doesn't share anything with me? Now, some might be want to think that vision 
because vision lies at the core of what witnessing or recognition are. Vision is the culprit because vision implies that I am separate from anything that I see. And anything that I see between myself, between myself and anything that I see is a kind of chasm or abyss of empty space. So she troubles that, she problematizes that a little bit by saying that this empty space is not actually empty. In her words, it's full of air, light, and the circulation of various forms of electrical, thermical, mechanical, and chemical energies that sustain us and connect us to each other and the world. So between myself and an other is not empty space. And this empty space is kind of traversed through by vision. No, there are many media that exist between myself and another. And we are both engaging with these media. And these media are what connects us. And instead of it being viewed as a kind of uh, empty void between us, it is instead a very lively space in which we are both thriving. So these kinds of energies are not reduced solely to kind of uh, you know, mechanical ones or, or, or any that, that pertain to like the th thermal energy or chemical energy or anything like that, but even just social energy where, you know, in various different settings, one's engagement with other people is determined by the setting itself. So let's say you go to uh, a, a sporting venue and there's like a, a game being played. You feel a sense of connection with your fellow, you know, sport people, fellow fans, uh, and, and you form a kind of identity around that. Now, if you encountered these same people on the street, you would not at any point have that same desire to connect with these people. So she says that there's a kind of um, uh, context, this, that is the social energy, can actually determine the way we engage with one another. So it is by virtue of that that she asks, hey, the assumption that we, you know, are necessarily antagonistic might have less to do with a kind of truth of our humanity and instead might be determined by a specific specific kind of contextual framework where we might be brought up in a setting given our the position I'm writing from, writing from, talking from like a North American highly individualistic context and it might be that setting, that context that actually fosters this idea. And it's not like a quote-unquote truth of human uh, interaction. So bringing us back here to this Jewish woman who gives this testimony and keeping in mind what I just said about context, Kelly Oliver writes this, In order to evaluate her testimony as an eyewitness, it is crucial to consider her socio-historical subject position and not just the accuracy of her testimony. So these contexts are what kind of set the stage for subjectivity because we attain our sense of self in these contexts, in these settings, that put us in a position of responsibility to others. We are responsible for others. Now, the kind of um, individualistic um, dream of like total separation has never really been realized. I mean, the capitalist system that claims to foster this doesn't do it en masse. You know, it relies upon various social programs. I mean, just the fact that we have stoplights at street corners or at intersections demonstrates that we are always working together to some extent. So there are these kind of underwriting tensions that, that I guess, subtend our interactions with one another. So because we all work together, she says that there is a responsibility 
for responsibility. Now, what does that mean? She does, it's a little play on words. She says, we are responsible to be response-able, that we are able to respond. Now, in addition to that, we are also responsible to be addressable. That is, we can be addressed by another. So that puts us in an ethical situation, a kind of ethical dynamic between myself and others around me, other subjects, because it is not that any one person should experience something on their own. Instead, they should be, um, others should be willing to come to their aid, to be able to listen, to be, you know, to make the person heard, not to feel like they're heard, but to actually be heard. And then that person too is in a position to reciprocate, where if the person being addressed is then able to give a response that recognizes the humanity, the kind of subjectivity of that first person. And that's a very long introduction. And as from here, we move into chapter one, domination, multiculturalism, and the pathology of recognition. So she starts out this chapter by thinking about the way that Franz Fanon, um, who, who's famous for having written The Wretched of the Earth or Blackface, White Masks, um, how Franz Fanon fits into this framework as a, as a critical race scholar in this, in this field. Because he is writing from a colonial setting. That is, he was writing from the French colony uh, of Martinique, and he was a, he was a doctor trained in, um, I guess, psychiatry. And he's writing from this, a certain subject position that implies a split between subjects and objects. Now, from his perspective, the colonizer is a subject that turns the colonized into objects. So he sees himself as being an object in this situation. So on first glance, this might be, and Oliver recognizes this, a kind of reinscription of the Hegelian subject-object split. But what Fanon does, at least for Oliver, is actually take aim at this whole process and to look at the way that recognition is in itself oppressive. Where what happens, according to Fanon and that Oliver picks up on, is that when a group of people are objectified on the basis of their skin color, they become, in their mind, their skin color. You know, they don't look upon themselves as uh, subjects with a kind, any kind of like psychological depth. They are only their skin color. And for oppressed people, in uh, Oliver's words, it is the dehumanization that motivates the struggle for recognition. So when you are dehumanized, you seek recognition in the very people that have wronged you, that have objectified you, because they are, in a sense, you know, they wield a great deal of power. And so any effort to realize a kind of identity in that, in those people, in, the, in this case, the colonizers, is to reinscribe their authority and to reinscribe the efficacy that is the, um, the potential or the, um, the usefulness of the subject-object split or how well it works. So quite simply, the remedy would be if people, that is oppressed people, were to recognize their subjectivity in themselves and not hope it conferred upon them by an exterior other, that is, in this case, the colonizer, now, it's important to note here that that might be easier said than done, right? Like, how do people who only know 
oppression, you know, undo that. And of course, this is something that we keep in the back of our minds when reading these kinds of texts. But that's kind of, you know, whatever. So another person that Oliver positions here is the word is uh, Jacques Lacan. So Lacan is famous for his ideas about, um, you know, the mirror stage, where for Lacan, our entering into subjectivity occurs at a pretty young age when we stand in front of a mirror and we see that, you know, we are autonomous from our parent, our mother, you know, specifically. So I see myself in the mirror for the first time. And in that moment, I recognize myself as being an autonomous, completely, you know, um, detached self. And it is from there that subjectivity emerges. So Oliver says that Fanon's work troubles this because what we see here is the suggestion that subjectivity always already happens to everyone. It is just a natural condition of life. Now, the problem is that that then we do not have any way to engage with those moments like colonialism, where subjectivity is actually used as a tool of oppression, how it's not just a kind of neutral thing that happens to everyone, how it is some it is something that is used to justify very oppressive things. So with black people, what we see instead is what is called a reverse mirror stage. So instead of in the mirror stage, the, the child attains a sense of their own identity. The reverse mirror stage, the child or the oppressed or the colonized or whatever, attains their identity not in themselves, but in the other, where the other gives them this identity. The other bestows upon them an identity, which is an opp a very oppressive encounter. It's a very oppressive dynamic. So that we can really understand this from the title of one of Fanon's books I already mentioned, uh, Black Skin, White Mask, where, for Fanon, black people are compelled to act a certain way, to be a certain way in order to be approved by the white um, colonizers. So this is one of the tensions of psychoanal psychoanalysis itself, because in psychoanalysis, things like rejection, exclusion, sorry, exclusion, projection, lack are naturalized. You know, they're seen as something that affect all of us. And especially in like Lacan, where we are, by virtue of our position within language, we cannot actually experience things without them being mediated through language. So we always experience a kind of lack because language doesn't actually satisfy those kinds of cravings in my very, very limited <laughs> understanding of Lacan. So it would seem as though Fanon wouldn't be able to make much use of psychoanalysis. But as it turns out, he he does. He makes a great use he makes great use of it. But in Oliver's words, he does it, or his hope is that, by reflecting back the white mirror of double alienation with his own progressive mirror, he can begin the process of disalienation. So he's just using the master's tools to some extent to undo that project. You know, using psychoanalysis as a means of pointing out all of the shortcomings of it in terms of the uh, encounter between colonized and and colonized people and colonizers. Now, at the end of this chapter, she presents very quickly another split uh, between uh, the kind of Lacanian Hegelian framework of antagonism. There, that is recognition in in the other that implies a kind of uh, hostility with what Fanon is doing, where she says that the the former 
that is the antagonistic side, are working on a, on a, on a level of desire. Whereas for Fanon, what he's interested in is, is in love and affect. Because for love's effective dimension opposes desire's reason or the kind of logical impulses behind desire. So in her words here, she says, while desire is a lack in relation to the other that is born out of a primordial alienation, affect is a movement toward the other that is born out of love. And then from here, we move into chapter two, identity politics, deconstruction, and recognition. So she begins this chapter with Nancy Fraser's idea about affirmative versus transformative politics, where affirmative politics seek to ameliorate a kind of problem or tension that that is plaguing, you know, society. Whereas a transformative politics tries to completely overhaul an entire system. So it'd be like the liberal solution versus, you know, a, a really a Marxist solution, where the liberal wants to just, you know, add women to corporate positions, and and then, you know, then equality will have been reached, whereas this is only a problem that's going to keep the system going. Now, it's a little bit unclear to me how Oliver perceives of this, because she says, she likes Fraser, she says that this, this distinction is important, but she says that this distinction, because it works in this kind of binary way, does risk reinscribing a certain um, kind of a logic of uh, a political action, one that privileges w- one over the other, that is transformative over affirmative. So Oliver isn't saying we should be affirmative, you know, political uh, people. We should be transformative, but she questions how much of this binary actually works to reinscribe the system, where we are able to say, "Hey, look, we are on the right side of." things and you over there are doing it wrong which for Oliver just reinscribes another subject object split so she says that we must remedy this with deconstruction hence the title which spoiler alert she doesn't actually do and it's one of the frustrating things is that she kind of teases it like she's going to do it but then kind of defers it to the next chapter and never does it there either so i'm going to say what i think she would have wanted to say to some extent because deconstruction is a very tricky idea and I'm by no means an expert in it but deconstruction implies not the act of undoing something like deconstructing a house for example deconstruction is the process or it's the the way by which we we um recognize that either side of a binary doesn't exist on its own, but is actually constitutive of the other side. And it constitutes the other side. So take hot and cold, a pretty, um, you know, easy binary to grasp, hot and cold. Now, hotness nor coldness has an essence in itself, where hotness, you know, in relation to a certain kind of coldness can actually be quite it can be scolding, whereas hotness in relation to another kind of coldness can be quite mild. Where if you come in from the cold, from like um, if you come into your house after being in negative 30 or 35 degree temperature for working with Celsius, then, you know, a zero degree house seems quite warm, whereas 
you know, for someone who's coming from a 30 degree plus place, zero degrees would be quite cold. So it's all kind of relative in that way. Now, deconstruction does that, but it almost takes it to another level. And it says that embedded within each is are various components of the other, where it's not only a relative thing, but in fact, we rely upon the other in order to give a kind of uh, identity to either. So another way to understand it, and this for me is probably the best example put forward by Eve Sedgwick in the Epistemology of the Closet, when she talks about how the binary between heterosexuality and homosexuality implies that heterosexuality is entirely dependent upon the existence of homosexuality for it to attain its kind of privileged status. So going back to the work of kind of Jacques Derrida, who was absolutely instrumental in forming this, the binary always implies a kind of hierarchy, right? It implies this privileging of one side over the other. Now, whether or not that's totally the case, who knows, but we can say for sure that the binary is, it's a construct, it doesn't exist like in nature, but it's something that we have created. And because of that, you know, we can find various faults with it or extensions of our own faults within it. Okay, anyways. Ah, so that is not what she says, but that is what, you know, one way we can undo this binary that I think she was alluding to. Now, instead, she looks at the work of two feminist and, uh, you know, uh, critical race scholars, Maria Lugonis and Iris Young. So Oliver identifies that in Lugonis's work, she advocates for a kind of identity politics that marks a person essentially reducing the racist encounter as one of difference. So she advocates for a kind of playfulness and transformation through what she calls world traveling that uh, oppressors try to foreclose. So she's speaking from the context of a, of a Latina woman who recognizes, and this is coming kind of out of the work of Gloria and Zeldua, in that in, in being a kind of uh, Latina American woman, you exist between two worlds. You, you are negotiating both an American identity and, uh, you know, your Latina identity. And that represents a kind of tension, that an existing in between that I guess to some extent opens up you up to a po- certain possibilities and that those are possibilities that should be fostered through playfulness, uh, through care of others, through traveling, world traveling between different kind of cultural settings in order to, you know, uh, expand your horizons to just use a kind of common moniker. Now, Oliver challenges this by saying that world traveling and playfulness are actually, in many cases, luxuries only afforded to the dominant group. Additionally, though, the very idea of world traveling implies borders as kind of fixed lines. You know, by saying that I'm going to travel to this place over here implies it it reinscribes the existence of that place as being separate from this other place, which is or the place from which which you are uh, emanating from or coming from, which is just a subtle reinscription of the idea of borders so that what that does is it reinscribes difference whereas Oliver wants to see what binds us instead of what you know separates us now like Lugonis the work of Iris Young is an effort to break down assumptions about fixity and uh and I well 
not like Lugonis. Instead, Iris Young tries to break down ideas of fixity and identity politics and identity more generally, uh, but it falls kind of short for Oliver because it simply reinscribes the same kinds of difference, where for Oliver, Young's notion of difference ultimately leaves social hierarchies intact. Now, here's another longer quote that uh, Oliver's characterization of the two, where she says that, with Lugonis, we have two people separated by the abyss between worlds that can be crossed through an identification with, um, through, through an identification. Whereas with Young, we have two people separated by the abyss between differences that cannot be crossed through identification, but only through language. Now, to return to the idea presented at the beginning of the chapter, that is the split between affirmative and transformative politics, uh, Oliver says that these two thinkers, Lugonis and Young, are in the belong to the realm of affirmative politics and that they aren't proposing these grand uh, solutions, nor are they actually getting at the core of these binary assumptions. They are just proposing what seem to be almost individualistic strategies to challenge oppression. And now she's going to consider Judith Butler's work in terms of this uh, reinscribing these kinds of splits. With chapter three, identity as subordination, objection, and exclusion. So for Butler, subjectivity is not something to applaud. Subjectivity emerges in response to a certain kind of oppressive system that is one that, in the Foucauldian sense, produces us as subjects. Where, in her words, the foundation of subjectivity is oppression and abuse. Whereas, and, and Oliver does not like that. Oliver thinks that subjectivity is something that is actually quite fruitful. It's something that comes out of love and care. It's not something that just happens to us when we have been beaten down to nothing. When we are beaten down to nothing, in Oliver's words, we become objects. So when Butler says that subjectivity is something that happens to all of us in relation to this oppressive system, she is dodging the possibility that some people experience this differently than others. So this sense, this kind of this oppressive mechanism, operates on different bodies than it does others. So in the United States, like obviously black male, black female bodies are acted upon in uh, oppressive, traumatic ways by the state way more than white bodies. But that is something we ignore if we just say that, oh, well, we are all oppressed by this system. We are all affected by it. So the task then for butlers to undo, to do, to do away with this entire process of subjectivity, to instead look at, um, to, to, to rest us from that. Whereas Oliver wants to say, no, subjectivity is what gives us potential as witnesses, you know, to be able to look at myself, to look at the world, and to then have a kind of ethical engagement with others whom I have recognized and have recognized me. So this is why in Butler's work, resistance is often reduced to like these almost haphazard uh, moments, like performativity, where Butler says that performativity, like in drag, um, is something that challenges the system. But Oliver says, can we really say that? Because it seems like this, this challenge to the system is just happening by chance. Like you're just totally leaving this up to chance because it might not actually challenge the system. And if we are just existing kind of on the surface in that way, like as though our bodies are what are going to oppose the system, then we are ignoring our responsibility to others, our responsibility to ourselves, 
and our kind of interpretation and analysis of the situation in which we are, we exist. And here, that propels us into chapter four, where I'll actually be joined by someone to help me explain this. So here we go. All right, so now I'm joined by Hélène to help me talk through this chapter. And I don't know if you want to say anything about yourself. No? Nothing? No, I'm good. Uh, well, anyways. All right, so this chapter, chapter four, the necessity and impossibility of witnessing. So what's going on here? So in this chapter, um, Kelly Oliver is really looking at what witnessing means and the sort of paradox that is um, the necessity of witness, of being a, a witness of, of testimony uh, when it comes to, to trauma and oppression, um, but also the impossibility of articulating that. Why? Why is it impossible? Well, Oliver uses um, some of Lobin Feldman's work here to talk about how um, trauma and and oppression, um, experiencing these things, um, is dehumanizing. And um, when you're dehumanized, you know you become an object, and objects can't speak. So you're um, taking position as a subject to talk about trauma, to talk through trauma, um, but you're talking about something that um, can't be spoken by a subject. It can't be spoken by a subject. Or can it be spoken by a subject, but you don't have that capacity because you've been objectified? Right, so you would be an object. Right, you're an object, yeah. so you don't have that. So you're not, yeah, so you can't be a human uh, you can't express dehumanization when you're in the, the, like when you're in this position as a subject it, it goes beyond language all right yeah so how then does the inner witness or the and the inner self figure into this so the inner witness is a term again from dory lob um and this is sort of uh, she talks about it as being necessary for having a sense of oneself um, as a subject. Um, and this is a sort of, a uh, again, negotiating voice between subjectivity and subject position, which is um, your location, your context, the context in which you live as a person in that conversation with the other who's also uh, might occupy a, a different subject position right right so having kind of recognized that there's an, a necessary interaction not only with yourself between yourself and your inner self but also between yourself and others how do subjects if they've been objectified have their subjectivity return so for um, for Dory Lobb, for Feldman, and, and for Kelly Oliver here, um, really the importance of, um, of subjectivity and responsibility lies in, um, 
witnessing and that is bearing witness rather than what she calls the eyewitness testimony. Um, so you've probably talked about the example of the chimneys. Yep. So that's a really good example um, of what sort of witnessing means and the importance of witnessing. Um, and she sort of expands on, on that here because um, this sort of highlights the responsibility of the listener to go beyond just what they see um, and in order to learn and listen to the other's experience. So you might not have experienced the oppression that or the trauma that the person is um, is testifying about. Um, but it's sort of saying like, even though I haven't lived this, um, I acknowledge that it happens and that it happened to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a responsibility on the part of the person you're addressing to not only be there, but to recognize what had happened to you. Now, if we think about this in terms of like colonizers and colonized, does not the responsibility of the colonizer, if they want to atone for their sins in, the, in that rough language, then is that enough to just acknowledge what happened to the other person? Yeah, I don't think there's any sort of atoning. Um, I, I think that uh, if I can turn more specifically to the examples Oliver uses in the chapter, um, you know, she talks about black women's testimony. I think that's in this chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, how black women's testimonies are always on trial. And so I think um, that's sort of a good example of when people aren't bearing witness. Um, what do you mean by on trial? So she talks about how... Um, she says here, um, black women, when black women's discourse is continually put on trial, it forces black women into the paradoxical situation of both insisting on their legitimacy and the truth of their experience and doubting that their experience is legitimate or real. So, you know, black women are often disbelieved when they talk about what they're experiencing. We, you know, we can think about um, intersectionality and black women talking about experiencing racist sexism or sexist racism um, and white women saying like, well, I don't experience that. So what you're experiencing isn't real or um, black men saying, I don't experience that. So what you're experiencing isn't real. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this where, where you're, where you're bearing witness is where you're going beyond what you can't experience or see right um and really paying attention to what's going on and i think oliver brings up a good point when she also talks about the doubting your own experience the legitimacy of your own experience um and in my work um i talk i think about sexual assault and so you can think about um like how rape culture would affect a survivor of sexual assault and how they might um, even come to disbelieve their own experience or the legitimacy of their experience by like blaming themselves for what happened to them, for example. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And in order for any kind of fruitful encounter to be had, there has to be on the part of the oppressor, which is a, a, a pretty simple way to designate this person, but let's call them the oppressor, uh, a recognition on their part of the reality of the other person's experience, even if it doesn't easily lend itself to a kind of empirical truth or a kind of historical fact, like with the Jewish woman at the beginning who in testifying that only that four chimneys exploded was in uh, contrast with the historical account. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a kind of truth to that experience on the part of the Jewish people who were challenging, you know, the guards at, at, at Auschwitz. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think if we want to think about, like, um, more examples of this kind of, of thing, you know, you can think about microaggressions get talked about a lot these days, um, and sort of people of color, for example, um, testifying to feeling, to, to experiencing microaggressions constantly every day um, in ways that, like, white people might not see or even, like, consciously realize that they're, they're doing it. So, for example, um, white folks taking up all of the sidewalk and not moving out of the way ever for, um, for black folks. Um, or I think about Helen Nikos, I might be uh, butchering her last name, um, but her writing uh, about um, phenomenology and Merleau-Ponty and the encounter of um, like white women in an, in an elevator or any like closed sort of setting with a black man and like clutching your purse in fear. Like these are microaggressions that f like Ex folks experience all the time and that affect people's physical and mental health um, but you might not be able to see that so bearing witness is about listening to those experiences believing those experiences and also like acknowledging the, the systemic structural violence that is taking place in, these, in the, the, the social contexts um, and our own role in that, um, in, in that encounter, in that setting. So she says that black women are forced to do something specific, like they're forced to speak in tongues in this setting. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, she's citing Henderson there, um, and she's talking, I think what Henderson is, is saying is um, that black women have to learn how to speak differently to different groups um, in different settings in order to survive. And um, I can't speak directly to that example because I haven't read Henderson, but it reminds me of um, Ortega, who I have read, um, and her sort of discussion of how women of color in the U.S. have to act differently in different settings in order to survive. Um, and so she'll speak specifically about in the academic setting, she has to act a certain way because um, she's understood a certain way by virtue of being a Latina woman. Um, you know, she might be like confused for a janitor um, or a cleaning 
um, woman in, um, in the academy. So she might not like laugh as much. She might try to, um, like look a certain way. Like she has to think about how to be in different places all the time. Um, you know, like now in the, the COVID era, I've been seeing a lot of things about, um, the dangers of wearing a mask for black men, for example, and how um, they have to consider what they look like in public in ways that white people don't even think about. Um, they don't have to think about it. And in fact, they might encounter these stories with disbelief, which again, brings us back to the importance of the type of witnessing that Oliver's talking about. Yeah, that's a really good example to kind of, I don't know, hit the point home, especially the contextual nature of these kinds of interactions, how things in different contexts, you know, you can't act the same way in every context. Um, but yeah, and then one last thing before kind of wrapping this up is considering the way that of looking at the performance of testimony or, or how does performance figure into this? Yeah, this is taken from Fellman also. Um, and so, so we've, we've sort of, I think, emphasized so far the importance of bearing witness to the performance of testimony by the part of the listener. But I also want to emphasize the importance of the performance of testimony. And so not merely the facts of what happened, what's being said, but the performance itself for the um, person testifying. Because I think a lot of the time, um, disclosure gets confused with testimony, and I think that testimony and witnessing in the ways that Fellman and Lobb and Oliver are talking about it um, go further than disclosure. So a disclosure might just be, here are the facts of what happened. Um, for example, a sexual assault disclosure might be um, just this is what happened, this is what happened, then this happened, and then this happened. Um, but a testimony at a witnessing goes beyond, again, like just the events. And so um, the performance of testimony can mean a lot because it can really get at um, the, talking about the silencing of what happened, the oppression at the root of what happened, the violence at the root of what happened that goes beyond the facts themselves. Um, so to return to my example about sexual assault disclosures, um, this might be thinking through, um, talking through one's experience of sexual assault while thinking through uh, the contexts in which it happened. So um, in like a Western North American cultural setting, that might be the rape culture, um, you know, the, the fact that it was maybe allowed to happen or that um, victim survivors get blamed for what happened or that when you disclose to people um, they asked you if you were drinking or what you were wearing things like this so you're really getting at the um, systemic and structural issues the contexts around the trauma um, and also hopefully looking to like this is where addressability and responsibility come in looking to um, change, political change, collective action. Yeah, yeah, beyond just, you know, changing individual circumstances or, or situations. Right. Uh, yeah, anything else? 
I think that's all. All right. Well, that'll also wrap up this episode. So for anyone that listened, thanks a lot. If there's anything that I or Ellen said that, you know, you want to add something to or that you feel like you should correct, then please feel free to. Um, please like and share and subscribe if you can. Uh, that would be greatly appreciated. But then otherwise, take care. Thanks.